Okay, for our message today, it'll be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele, and it is entitled, Two Questions for Passover. Good afternoon, everyone. It is good to see everybody here. Such a beautiful weekend. All of our prayers answered for good weather. Um, we, uh, we invested in renting a heater for the tent out there, and that's almost guaranteed that you won't need it, right, when, when you spend some money on something. Um, but we hope, uh, if it does get cooler this evening, that everybody will be comfortable and, and enjoy a, a fantastic meal, and hopefully you can all stick around for that. Last night, as part of the Passover service, and whether you were here or maybe other locations, you may have read, and certainly we did here, from a scripture that was both prophecy and now, in a certain extent, history, uh, but is also a relevant uh, passage for us today and still carries with it some promises for the future. It was a prophecy because the words that were written down, uh, they were written down about 700 years um, before Jesus was born. And it became history, of course, because of the events that the man Isaiah described were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And it remains relevant and challenging for us today. Challenging because of what we are supposed to be able to gain or understand or even implement in this prophecy. And it is, of course, it carries a future promise. A promise of more to come. Beyond this age, beyond this world, next, the next thing after each of our lives here on earth are finished. So what passage am I talking about? Well, it is Isaiah 53. Let me find my place here. Isaiah 53, and then we start in verse 1. And it's interesting. It starts with two questions. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Now, if you're like me, we often just read this passage as it's poetic, and, and these questions are just set up to then present to us the answers. And that is true. But I think we should look at these as real questions for ourselves as we think about this passage and its meaning. It's important that we answer these questions. Because these two questions have very radical effect on our life. Because if we really, truly, honestly answer these questions in, let's say, the affirmative, then it will change our entire life. And you might be thinking, well, I've already done that. But there may be ways in which you have not done that. As we make our way through this chapter, I want to ask you, do we believe 
what Isaiah is telling us. Do we believe his report? Do we believe everything about his report? And then the second question, it might need a little bit more explanation. It says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But in order to answer that question, we need to understand who is the arm of the Lord, don't we? Who is the arm of the Lord? This term, or similar versions, sometimes it's the hand. Sometimes it's the arm. But on every occasion, every occasion that this passage or this phrase, rather, is used in Scripture, it's really interesting. It is to show or signal God's working in the world. An actual act, a movement that he is making in the world. You know, Reg talked about his movement, his hand, his handiwork, his arm working in the land of Egypt, right? And bringing about his wonders and his judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And so this term is applied to God's working, working in the lives of men and in the history of mankind. And interestingly enough, in most times that that phrase, the arm of the Lord, is used, it is to bring about salvation. There's a few times that it's judgment, but more often than not, it's about an act of salvation. For example, in Psalm 98, in verse 1, it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And it's interesting that, again, this is kind of touching upon what Isaiah is talking about. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the psalmist is saying, well, the whole world has seen it. But has it? Has it really seen it? There's actually kind of a trick question in all of this. We have another example of the use of this term in Isaiah 59. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. His, his arm, his hand of salvation is not limited. He can save. He can save everyone. He can save. And then perhaps the most applicable because of this this day that we're meeting here, the day of Passover, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6. It says, the Eternal says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. And so there we have a combination of salvation and judgment. And God's arm, his power, his strength being used. But who is the arm of the Lord? Who is this arm of the Lord? Well, we actually need to just turn to one scripture. And it's a fascinating scripture. And there's a lot in here that we really need to, to take notice of. 
And it's, it's a scripture that we will sometimes skip over as we are working our way towards the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus at the end of his ministry. It's an event that takes place as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem for the last time. We find it in John chapter 12 and verse 12. And this is just a remarkable event. It was a day that was prophesied when the, and then the Messiah, Jesus, literally fulfilled the prophecy in plain sight. Again, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This thing is being delivered in plain sight. And yet, they don't see it. Picking up in verse 12, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, and that is the feast of Passover, of unleavened bread, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. It's crazy to think about that this crowd in just, you know, a few days later are yelling, crucify him. These are the same people. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, uh, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples. How about this? His disciples didn't even get what was going on. It says right here that they did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. Even his closest followers were not sure, did not really understand what is going on. And what excitement this must have been, right? You can just imagine the whole city. Everybody's there. They're excited about Passover. But not only that, there's this powerful preacher. There's this, there's this rabbi. There's this leader. And he is entering the city. Surely he's the Messiah. Surely he is now going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He may be riding in on a donkey. But he's going to ride out on a war horse. And take care of those Romans. Or so they thought. Except that is not what he was there to do. The disciples didn't get it. The people around him didn't get it. John continues, Therefore the people who were with him then, uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they had heard that he'd done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said amongst themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And it, it, This is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because it kind of jump, jumps out. But you understand what's going on here. For all of their scheming, for all of their attempts to trap him, for all of their attempts to argue and debate with him, undermine him, it was not working. The whole crowd was following him. There was this fervor that maybe he was the Messiah that would kick out the Romans, establish this kingdom. And the Pharisees 
didn't want any of that. I mean, just think about that mindset. Okay, they were mistaken about what he was really about to do. But even in their mistake, the Pharisees didn't want it. Didn't they all want the Messiah to come and restore the kingdom? Well, sure, as long as he does it through them, right? Through the power brokers, so that they're still involved, so they're still the ones in charge. Human nature at its finest, wouldn't you say? But still. And in verse 20, he says, Now there were certain Greeks among those that came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was at Bethesda of Galilee, and said, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew came, Andrew and Philip came to Jesus. And then it's, it's a really strange thing that happens. Because Jesus is completely uninterested in what they've come to tell him. In fact, he's completely distracted about what is happening. He doesn't really even acknowledge their request. It says, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and, it, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now it's something to think about here of what Jesus' frame of mind was. He had just fulfilled another prophecy. He had just ridden into the city on that, on that donkey, just as he was supposed to. And he knew the clock was running. It started a process, didn't it? It started a process towards he himself being the Passover lamb. It's almost as though he's fortifying himself. You know, we see that later when he's in the garden. That he's praying and he's, he's, he's reaching out to the Father to give him strength, to enable him to do the things that he is going to have to do and to endure something that is almost beyond our imagination. And he's reaching out now, even still, earlier in this process. Just like we would wouldn't we? I mean, have you ever, I mean, the closest thing that I could think of to this was having a medical concern, right? When you have some procedures, some tests, and the tests can reveal a good outcome or they can reveal a bad outcome. And you start that process and you go down that line and you're not sure if this ends badly. How are you going to deal with that? Many a prayer has been given. We see Jesus battling immense pressure, fear. The human desire 
to run. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then something remarkable happened. Yet again, in this series of amazing events. It says, a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Have you ever had a booming voice come down when you pray? Would it be cool or would you be scared out of your mind? But how strengthening, reinforcing. Jesus was connected right there with the Father and the Father was intimately aware of what was going on with his, with his Son. and He was right there with him. I am with you. I am with you through this whole thing. And I will glorify my name, which is, of course, their name together. <clears throat> I have glor both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by heard it uh, and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Remember our first question that we asked at the beginning of Isaiah's passage? Do we believe this report? Because if we do, this is radical, isn't it? This has to change lives if you believe this report. It changed the lives of the disciples. They were in the midst of it. They didn't quite understand all of it but then they believed it. And it isn't, it's changed the whole world. Is it changing us? Does it continue to change us? Jesus continues, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. You remember earlier the passage that I read from, I think it was Exodus, where God was going to bring about his salvation and his judgment at the same time. And here, as Jesus is hurtling towards Passover, he's going to do the same thing again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? This, wait, so you're not the Messiah? You're not the one that's going to drive out the Romans? That's what they're questioning. They're understanding to a point what he's saying. So they say, who is this son of man? Well, if you're not the Messiah, then who are you? And Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the son of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Do we walk in the light? Do we walk in this light? In this conscious awareness of who Jesus is? Do we walk in this light? That he is the arm of the Lord. This world is growing darker. There are lots of challenges on the horizon for anyone who is religious at all, but certainly Christian. Are we going to continue to walk in the light? To reject the fear. Do we look to our Father to give us that encouraging word that says, I am with you, and I will glorify my name through you as you go through this, this life and this world. Do we walk in the light? Isaiah asks us two questions. And how we answer those questions will change how we live our lives. John continues, he says in verse 37, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. Who is the arm of the Lord? It is Jesus Christ, isn't it? John just makes that very clear. And in spite of miracle after miracle, all the things that the people that, that surrounded him and many that followed him, all the things that they saw in his ministry, in his life, everything they saw in Jerusalem as he entered the city on that donkey, they still did not believe. They did not see who the arm of the Lord was. They did not see that he was being revealed right in front of them. And it's, it's such a strange prophecy, isn't it? That, that John refers to in Isaiah. That they were deliberately blinded. That, it, that they could not be allowed to see it. And how could they? If they had seen it, if they had understood, then they would have maybe been swayed. And, or not swayed, rather, by, by the Jewish leaders to turn on Jesus, to turn on the Messiah. So remember our two questions. Who has believed the report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do we believe Isaiah's report? Do we believe John's report? What we read last night. Do we believe Matthew and Mark and Luke? Do we believe the life and the ministry of Paul? 
do we believe in this man named Jesus? Do we believe that he said what he said and what he did? And do we believe how he told us to live? Answering yes to Isaiah's question isn't a simple task because contained in the answer, contained in that honest answer, is I think what C.S. Lewis was referring to. C.S. Lewis was talking about whether or not uh, basically Jesus was either who he said he was or he was just you know, a good man and a good teacher. And he said, this man was either the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Right? You can shut him up, he says, as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as they did. And you can call him a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. They're the only two choices he gave us. Accept him or reject him. There are no half measures. So who has believed the report? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Most of the people that saw Jesus with their own eyes did not fully understand. How about us? Do we see him? Even though maybe we see him through a glass darkly. Do we see him at work in our life? Because I'm not talking about, yeah, I see him. I keep the holy days. Yep, I see him. I keep the Sabbath. And I, I, don't, I don't do mean things to my neighbor. I haven't murdered anybody recently. That's great. More importantly, do we see the arm of the Lord working in our lives? Addressing the things that we know still need to be fixed. Do we let him perform his work? Think about this for a minute. I don't know, I probably should have looked up the number, but how many people do you suppose have lived on the earth? You know, billions. Anybody have a guess at how? I, I have no idea. I mean, just amongst the people who are alive on the earth today, it's billions. Of all of those people, how many do you think really, truly know Jesus? And actually had him working in their life. Out of the billions of people, it is a tiny number, we know that, that have actually accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. We really need to keep that perspective in mind. Because we can all be lulled into this pattern of living life, right? We go to work for six days a week, five days a week, and we go to church on the Sabbath, and, and then rinse and repeat. 
And there's good in that. But we have to go deeper. Because the rest of what Isaiah is about to tell us requires that we go much deeper. We must not get complacent. The arm of the Lord has been revealed to us and in our lives, and we are just a small number of people trying to enter in that narrow way, with that narrow path, that narrow gate. And I think about Jesus entering into the gate of Jerusalem. And as he was doing that, he was entering into the narrow gate for our salvation. There was only one path that he could follow. He could not alter it. He couldn't change it. He couldn't make it any easier. He was on a very narrow path himself. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. Jesus said, put it in a slightly different context. It says, he went through the cities and villages, teaching and sojourning towards Jerusalem. And then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say, I do not know you. I do not know you where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. We kept the Feast of Tabernacles and the Holy Days and the Sabbath. We ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know you or where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and from the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are, and in, and indeed, there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. Or maybe just will be those left outside. Could you imagine looking in through the windows of the kingdom of God and seeing everybody else in there? That guy's in there? You've got to be kidding me. We cannot get complacent. We have to believe the report. We have to recognize the arm of the Lord, and we have to let him work out his salvation in our lives. We don't want to be found outside of the kingdom of God. So we come all the way back to Isaiah 53. All the way back to the beginning. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, or for our peace, was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Are we tempted to turn away from this sight? Are we tempted to just to think, well, this, this life is not working out the way I thought it would? There's too many challenges. Too many hardships. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe he's doing something wrong. Are you sure you're the Messiah? Have we allowed that perspective to come into our minds? It is, the entire world says that, doesn't it? Jesus was a historical figure. Yeah, there's evidence for him in history, but that that's all it is. And we're believing in a myth. And yet those of us that confess that we believe Isaiah's report, that the risen Christ has been revealed to us, we have a different challenge. Buried inside of this passage of scripture. And it's found in all the pain and suffering that Jesus went through. It says he was oppressed. He was afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressors, transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they have made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. So what kind of process is this that God is pleased at the terrible suffering of his son? What could possibly justify this horrendous torture that Jesus went through? Why did he have to go through all of that? Why the beating? Why the whipping? with the cat of nine tails? Why tearing his flesh? Why was that necessary? All of that pain. You know, I mean, Steve talked about it this morning in the seminar. There are much quicker ways to kill a man. Even without, you know, drugs and put them to sleep and so on. There are much quicker ways. And yet, he had to have all of this cruelty and pain. Why? I don't confess to know all of it. But what I do see are two distinct processes going on in, in this passage. First is the sacrificial process. The death of Jesus. And that does what? What does that do for us? He is dying for our sins, right? He is taking our place. He is paying the price for our sin. All of our wickedness, all of our sins, all of our hateful thoughts and words and actions 
were put on him and he died in our place. The second process is for something else. It is for our healing. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Barnabas prayed in, in our prayer time earlier. You know, at Passover we focus on his death. And we should. And we, we are told to memorialize it. We have the symbols that we partook of last night the sacrifice of our Savior. But he accomplished something else. Something that goes deeper and frankly challenges us as we try and live this Christian life. And it's easy to overlook. It is our healing. It is our healing. Now, we, we think about healing Often physical, right? We'll do an, an anointing. Somebody will ask for an anointing for most often physical healing. And, and we call upon those stripes so that we can be healed physically from whatever pain we are suffering from, whatever illness we have. But that's only half of the story. And it's easy for us to try and live this life and not allow the arm of the Lord to get a little deeper into our very soul. The spiritual pain. The spiritual burdens and griefs and sorrows. In Psalm 139, King David wrote this uh, really interesting little passage. And I've been, I've been incorporating this into my prayer life a little bit. As, as I meet challenges and, and difficulties in life, and it, it's really powerful. But, well, let's take a look at it first. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxiety. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, who does not want the way everlasting? Okay, good. No arms went up. And who wants to eliminate anxious thought? Okay, come on. Everybody's arms should go up. And who has wicked ways? Except it's not wicked ways. It's actually a mistranslation, I think. Because when we look at the Hebrew word here, it's not the word for wicked. It's the word for hurt and pain. Hurt and pain. Emotional hurts and pain. And I think that makes more sense. This passage isn't about, all right, search me, God, and see how bad I am. Because if he was to do that, would he lead you in the way everlasting? This is a passage about healing. It's about restoring. It's about comfort. 
It's about using the stripes that Jesus bore in his body for our healing, spiritual healing. I think it makes a lot more sense. Because if you think about your life, the things that you struggle with the most have been the things that you've struggled with the most all of your life, aren't they? Those challenges, those deep challenges in yourself, born out of what? Wickedness? No. Born out of brokenness, out of pain and hurt from maybe past sins, maybe the sins of others, the things that have been done to us or we've done to ourselves, guilt and shame, grief, all of those burdens. Do we recognize the arm of the Lord has come to heal us, to work within us to heal these? So if we take a different look at Isaiah 53, in verse 5 he says, but he was wounded. He was pierced for our transgressions. Yep. Our rebelliousness is the word there. He was bruised or crushed for our guilts. So not just paying the price for our sin, but he is, was crushed in his body so that he could, through the, the power of his life in us, remove our guilt from that sin. You know, we can stop the sin, but the guilt can remain. And it can stop us. It can hinder us from walking that way of everlasting life. The chastisement for our peace, our wellness, our welfare, our health and soundness was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed, made fresh, repaired, completely healed. Have you ever wanted to just be made fresh, made new? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Healing is not easy. You know, if you think about it from a physical standpoint, you have a wound, you have a, you know, a broken, broken shoulder or sprained ankle or whatever it may be. In order to gain healing, what has to happen? Well, the physician comes along and he says, well, does it hurt when I do this? And he gets into that thing and they examine it and they x-ray it and they do tests. You actually have to enter into the place of woundedness, don't you? in order to find healing. And the same is true of spiritual healing, of guilt, of shame, of bitterness, of, of anger, of all the things born out of a broken spirit and perhaps sins that we have committed in life. In order to let the healer come in, we have to let him in to that place of pain. And we would much rather package it up Shove it in a, in a locked room and throw away the key. But that does not lead us, lead us rather, into the way everlasting. You know, we think sometimes that we're dealing with those things. I've dealt with that problem. 
I don't have that envy. I don't have that shame or guilt or whatever it may be. And yet it's still there. And everyone can see it. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns. They do not gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, or I would say brokenness of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And of course, the hands and the feet and the body follow in our actions and everything that we do. If there's evil in our heart, if there's brokenness in our heart, there's sin, if there's guilt, if there's shame, we are disabled. And we will, unfortunately, bring forth fruit that nobody wants, including ourselves. What Isaiah is trying to tell us in chapter 53, what God has been trying to tell us all along, if we truly believe in him and believe this report and believe the revealing of the arm of the Lord in our life and if we are prepared to accept that what he's been trying to tell us is what he was telling us all along from the very start of his ministry in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 Jesus says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do we believe the report? Do we accept that all debts have been canceled? Do we understand that there is a way, through the stripes, through the brokenness of our Savior, for us to be healed of guilt, to be fully redeemed in Christ Jesus. Do we come to him daily and pick up his yoke and give him ours? We should do it daily. We cannot just do it once. Because you know what happens throughout the day? We pick up our own yoke again. And daily we have to come back to him and say, Lord, take this and give me your yoke. Give me your burden. It's much lighter than mine. If we do that, he is going to move in. He is going to go deep. He's going to go where the woundedness is, where the brokenness is. And he's going to set about fixing it. To bring healing. To bring restoration. And then, what happens? Well, then we can walk in the way everlasting. We can truly walk in that way, renewed, refreshed, remade, recreated by Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, he says, When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper 
in his hand. You shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And when does that happen? In the kingdom of God. And we don't want to be on the outside looking in. Hey, he just ran off with my portion. We don't want that. We want to be there having a portion that he is divided with the great. Isn't that cool? God thinks that we are great. If we let him finish his work, we will be. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Who sees themselves as strong? All the time. We will be strong. And not because of what we did. But because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He dropped that single seed of wheat in the ground so that he could produce all of us and bear fruit in all of us. We are his seed. We are those who will inherit the work of salvation and restoration that he has begun in, in us. He will divide the spoil with us. That's you and me. That's the promise. That's the way everlasting that David was talking about. We just need to listen to him and accept what his mission was all along, as I said earlier. From the very, very beginning, all the way back in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he said, it says, so he came to Nazareth, Jesus, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal who? The brokenhearted. To bring healing through his body to the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to those captives captive in sin, in guilt, in shame, and recovery of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Do we believe the report? We really should. Christ Jesus was sent to you and to me, and he was revealed to us, to restore us, and to bring us together into that way everlasting.